Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are exploring the English roots of ghost lore in the Ozarks and a few other legends. The Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and about any other podcast platform. So what does Shakespeare have to do with our favorite Ozark ghost stories? Well, I think it comes down to one very simple question. To be or not to be? Well, for the ghosts, that is. Okay, melancholy Prince. <laughs> it sounds like there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. <laughs> well, perhaps, but perhaps tis worse in Scotland. Uh, by the pricking of my thumb, something wicked this way comes. And the Bogarts and Bogarts and, uh, and apparitions that follow the settlers to the new world and settle down comfortably here in the Ozark Hills. We will discuss how Elizabethan ghosts found their homes in the Ozarks, but first we want to invite everyone to like, follow, etc. Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, plus we encourage you to follow the podcast. And while you're here on Facebook, you can subscribe to the uh, private uh, Dark Ozarks subscribers group, why you may ask. Yes, it does have a small subscription fee, but you receive exclusive content and behind the scenes info that you don't get anywhere else. It also helps us bring more original content to the Dark Ozarks. You can click the subscribe button on the page. You will have to log in since there's a payment. We appreciate everyone. And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarks.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage everyone to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, <laughs> in person and online on Facebook and their website, alwaysbuyingbooks.com, for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more, not to mention the buildings haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's best brewery by Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and food in a historical building with a noir past, and also the place is haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. Now, Shakespeare and the Ozarks. Not, not two things that you normally hear in the same sentence, or at least most people don't. Very true, very true. <clears throat> Surprisingly, it actually uh, makes sense, it makes a lot of sense based upon uh, original English settlement in the hills. That, that's very true. Um, and uh, ironically, uh, the concept of uh, the supernatural and ghosts in particular in old England during the Elizabethan age and shortly afterwards, afterwards really frames how we talk about ghosts in America today. And so, we, we'd all probably be pretty familiar uh, with the conversations 
400 years ago. Very much so. It is surprising, of course, doing research for tonight's topic. One of the things that really was very, was very interesting to me is how modern or either how modern or how little we have changed. One of the two. Exactly. Exactly. You know, there's always the old joke that, you know, human nature doesn't change very fast. And, and that's true. But these concepts in particular really were framed beginning in the Middle Ages, but really sort of uh, fleshed out in detail during the time of Shakespeare. And of course, he was a, a master at using, utilizing those concepts in his art um, and in ways that didn't get him beheaded, so. Two very important uh, jobs for the, uh, the artist <laughs> in uh, <coughs> really in any age. <laughs> True. <laughs> and, and I think something that's very important to note, of course, we may think of the, this era as, you know, 450 years ago and, you know, a long time in the past. This was during the, uh, you know, a, a, a phase of the Enlightenment. It was mm-hmm. uh, during the Protestant Reformation. It was... Mm-hmm a point and an age of exploration when the uh you know after <clears throat> centuries of uh, of the dark ages that we were looking at really extraordinary technology extraordinary uh capacity to travel that was unheard of a couple of hundred years prior very, very true, very true. And um, and everything that was happening back in old England and the, the conversations followed people um, on those adventures, including settling in North America. Um, one thing that um, a lot of modern listeners might say, well, you know, Shakespeare is so hard to understand and, you know, I don't get it. And and uh, it's uh, it feels stilted or whatever. Um, and wasn't this all for the upper class anyway? Because uh, we mm. imagine that he went to to the Globe Theater. Um, ironically, that's not the case um, because uh, a, a lot of the upper class did not go to the theater. So actually, a lot of a lot of the theater uh, audience would have been ordinary folks um, by the same token um, you are talking about the sort of the beginning of the codification of the English language and uh, we have to thank some of these playwrights particularly Shakespeare for uh, giving us a lot of the language that we use today. Uh, he invented over 2000 words and countless phrases that we use now that had did not exist and had no meaning until he put them in a play. It is in some ways the, the birth of the common tongue of English. Yes, because it, it, it was not that way before that. And 
while it, it I, I think the the difficult oftentimes the difficulty in <clears throat> trying to make heads or tails of uh, of Shakespeare often comes in the sense that it's we're we're not absorbing it as a full body of work we're oftentimes just presented with very small snippets that may be difficult to contextualize if we're just mm -hmm. on our own something that was really surprising to me um out of the research uh of uh, a, a a book excerpt titled of ghosts and spirits walking by night 1572 and minus the <clears throat> uh, an older uh spellings of things of of many words the simple uh, the simple opening uh, sentence is quote that there happen strange wonders and prognostications and the sudden noises and cracks and such like are heard before the death of men before battle and before some notable alterations and changes which could be the opening of any ghost story today <clears throat> and does not sound like you're reading in other language by any no. stretch of the imagination these are <clears throat> these are very modern i would use the term modern i think very comfortably uh successful and intelligent men and women mm -hmm. who are thinking these things through and are really striving to move humanity out of the past yes and and then you have to throw in one little monkey wrench in, in all of this is that when we were specifically talking about the supernatural and ghosts that the conception of how you talk about them and what are they and are they real um took sort of a radical left turn during the, the 1550s when England suddenly became, well, 1530s rather, when England certainly be, suddenly became a Protestant nation. Um, and um, we, we, still, we, we still have that conversation today about ghosts. Yes. Not, not overtly in a religious sense, but you know, uh, the, sort of the earlier connotation, the medieval connotation was influenced more by the, uh, Catholicism and the idea of purgatory. Yes. So, <clears throat> so it was okay. So we could conceive of the, the concept of, of, uh, of an entity uh, dwelling and coming back to visit as they are in purgatory, the soul is in purgatory. Um, but with the Reformation, uh, and suddenly we, we, you know, in England, you can't speak in those terms or, you know, you lose your land and your, all your holdings are burned and you might be beheaded. Um, you suddenly had to speak differently. And the dogma became that we don't necessarily acknowledge that ghosts are real, but if they are, they appear to men in their sleep. <laughs> Which is certainly as a as a as a writer, I 
I love the pivot. Yeah, I do too. Uh, because then <clears throat> uh, if there's any question, you go, hey, they just dreamed it, guys. And <clears throat> that it, it really, it, first of all, to me, it speaks <clears throat> very heavily into how our various and at times conflicting religious dogmas shape our language, shape our perceptions, shape what we believe may or may not be possible. Mm -hmm. And that certainly there was a, a, a strong conflict. I, uh, and a strong cultural conflict as well as just the obvious uh, political uh, conflicts that were going on. But in, in short, <clears throat> we had this long-standing tradition within Catholicism of purgatory that souls would be there, neither in heaven or in hell. Mm -hmm. They would be at, at another place and they could at various times and various reasons wander back. And so there was a, there was that religious structure for um, the supernatural occurrences, paranormal occurrences, specifically ghosts. Mm -hmm. And that and this was something that was just largely understood within the structure. Obviously we, we have documentation of a, a number of uh, financial gains and abuses that spurred elements of the reformation <laughs> and uh in regards to purgatory pay us lots of money and we'll get your loved one out um and <clears throat> certainly some of those abuses pushed for the heavy backlash and then created the the protestant position that there was no there was no limbo there was no purgatory there was no in between uh you're either in heaven or in hell and mm -hmm. and there, there's there's uh, you know anything in between is simply wrong. And I think what's interesting to me <clears throat> is that within this time period of the 1500s, late 1500s, early 1600s, this uh, this argument was being framed in in the form of superstition versus modernism. It it it, it was to a degree. But it also then got framed in, in, in the sense of, well, basically, if we can't deny that something happened, then it has to be the work of the devil. That too, which we still contend with um, yes. on regular discussions today. <laughs> but that kind of flies flies in the face of the idea of the modernist argument um mm -hmm. which so th there was contradiction even within the reformation uh, oh very much so yeah uh, and and and, and and when i when i use the term modernist i would say an, an evolving modernism yeah in in the sense that for the for the contemporaries of the modernist reformation movement they were looking at what in some of our research has been classified as a conservative catholicism with purgatory um looking at that and seeing it as this this old-fashioned old-timey thing that we're moving away from and certainly king james the first was leading the way with his demonology studies but then he also uh wrote a ghost story so right which i want to read now i have not yet read it I, I have I've seen it referenced, but I've not actually read it. Um, 
so so yeah so james is a little more complicated than than some modern protestants want to illustrate him as uh, yes of course and of course he was also a very um very much a believer in witchcraft um and yeah. second sight because he because he had um misfortune foretold to him by a soothsayer yes or what we would now call a medium correct so and and i think as as is typical uh the realities of the world around us do not fit in the neat tidy boxes that we keep trying to push them in and consequently we get this very rich tapestry of contradiction yeah throughout <clears throat> throughout this process something that was very striking to me about these shakespearean ghosts is that they present a a series of of analyses and questions that in in all reality people are grappling with uh to the present day very very much so um and one one of the constructs that that is illustrated by this this debate about moving away from the medieval view towards a a, a more modernist view is that um to deal with this issue that sometimes they are presented in dreams and yes. richard Third is a, is a good example uh, of a Shakespearean play that utilizes that um, the the ghosts of his victims appear to Richard uh, the night before Bosworth and and uh, uh, foretell his doom and he awaits talking about basically being tormented in his sleep and then um, um, the general on the other side uh, basically was confronted by the same ghost in his dreams and and told that he was going to win and he waits in a very good mood and and uh, very happy with them uh which was a bit of a dance you had to that Shakespeare had to do to not cross the line of going against dot church doctrine so um that that was a good uh, illustration you know um of course, I think really you have to look at Hamlet and Macbeth are, are the, the two examples where it's used the most. I think, you know, um, you know, there's Hamlet and there's uh, a lot of scenes with the ghosts and uh, usually um, not everyone can see them. Often it's yes. just Hamlet. Um, and that comes out of that evolving idea that uh, ghosts really aren't real. Um, it was also uh, decided at that time that for whatever reason that uh, ghosts could not appear to women. Yes. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not I cannot speak authoritatively on that one I uh, think there's a there's a lot of lore that that diminishes that particular opinion something that was really well a couple of things digging into this first <clears throat> the understanding that 
seeing ghosts as a uh, within a dream existing as a as certainly as a literary device uh, to protect mm-hmm. oneself in a in a quasi religious socio political environment. Yes, it is mm-hmm. brilliant. Um, but also something that could easily resonate with an audience because we have many, many accounts um, and I think some even personal experiences of having dreams in mm-hmm. which someone who has gone on mm-hmm. is back. And sometimes you can experience that and say, wow, that was just a dream. Maybe I missed the person. Maybe I was just thinking about the person. And then there are other dreams that it is much more of a visitation. Yes. Um, and, and I think it's just a uh, sort of a admission, so to speak, uh, that those events do happen. I mean, uh, aside from being able to move along the, the plot of, of, the, uh, of the play, um, I mean, uh, Macbeth was certainly the same. And of course, not only did it d- deal with the you know, issues of the supernatural issues of ghosts, but then of course, also witchcraft. Um, yes. One of my favorite and, parts. Yes. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, of course, there, there, there did tend to be a, a theme in a lot of these Elizabethan plays of it, it, the victim basically, you know, of murder being able to have retribution um, by coming back in some way and affecting things so that justice is done, or at least maybe uh, the murderer is exposed um, or, or driven crazy, you know, in the case of Lady Macbeth. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, and there's certainly cases uh, of hauntings that kind of hint at that same kind of, you know, supernatural intervention. It really starts just layering in the idea of an unresolved issue, a, a spirit that is not at rest because something needs to be resolved. Yes. Which, yeah. which again is is a an idea that gets dealt with regularly in various facets all the way to present day. And jumping back <clears throat> really briefly mm-hmm. uh, to Richard the Third, mm-hmm. I found this really interesting. Uh, Shakespeare's source, or a source, uh, was the Hollinshed's Chronicles, mm-hmm. and Richard is said to have had a terrible dream of quote, images like terrible devils on the night before the battle, but there's no mention of ghosts. And this parade of the dead comes back to life that it is entirely Shakespeare's creation. And so this, this melding of source material, et cetera, but also <clears throat> these interesting questions, of course, something that is allow, certainly allowable with the literary device that he used is the idea that hmm, all of all of these terrible images? On one hand, of course, you can you can say, "Oh, it was just a dream," but you could even 
take a, a very modern uh, psychotherapist approach and apply and say, oh, the terrible things that you've done, uh, you know, your psyche is speaking to you all within itself, you're, you're going crazy. We wouldn't use those terms, but you know, right. as with Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, um, your, your you know, internal dialogue is creating these things. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's no coast there. Uh, we can look at it very, very um, uh, from, a, from a deeply materialistic standpoint and say, oh, there's, there's nothing there, but you know, you've, you've been under a lot of stress. There's, that's what, <laughs> that's what this well, is about. In all fairness, Richard had been, so. <clears throat> yes, and <laughs> I think what is, uh, what is brilliant about the, the aspects is that all three, uh, all three reads are, are, are workable and mm-hmm. they're not even contradictory. You could read it all three ways simultaneously and have it still work. Which then that points out, you know, some of the issues that come up in modern hauntings is, which is it? Or is it a bit of column A, column B and column C all, you know? Um, yes. And, and that, that is something that we struggle with at times as we, as, as we investigate cases versus as well as just analyzing and um, going through um, modern accounts. So um, really nothing has changed in 400 years as far as that goes. Um, Which I, you could contend that the types of paranormal activity that they were dealing with in the 1500s and 1600s, they were dealing with the same activity, the same type of, uh, of, of paranormal occurrences. It, it, well, really you are. Um, and then if, if you even want to look at it from a literary perspective for, for those listening that say, well, you know, I'm not much into Shakespeare or something, same device, really, you can say it's that same thing with Dickens and Christmas Carol. 100%. And the same, the same arguments and questions being presented, Marley appears to Scrooge, and he initially dismisses him as uh, indigestion. Exactly, exactly. So he's trying to be a very modernist there in that, you know, it, it, ha- it has to be just, you know, a simple explanation. Uh, the house is settling, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> internally know, and just, externally. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, I've had that feeling before. And uh, <laughs> several times, actually. But it, it really is, you know, it's something that, I find fascinating with both Shakespeare and Dickens, and of course, 300 years nearly uh, separating them, a little less, but the idea that in both cases, our mm, protagonist and antagonist of the story are being presented with supernatural occurrences. They're being presented with paranormal activity to, yeah. to put it mildly, and 
here's here's a something I I'm going to throw out as a as a postulate. See what you think. Um, that in in both cases, the certainly statistical majority of the audiences for both Dickens and Shakespeare were were common folks, were the everyman um, yeah. uh, of society, and maybe they weren't terribly learned. Maybe they weren't on the cusp of modernity. And in so many cases, based on their own experiences or the experiences of their families, they would have been exposed to these literary paranormal incidences and went, well, yeah, it's a ghost. And exactly. We, we know what this is, guys. We, we, we are not uh, questioning on the cusp of modernity, is it a dream within a dream? Is it a, a uh, an indigestion? Is it is it all of these things? <clears throat> but for the sake of the larger conversation, and the and the, the many people who would have been exposed to the work that both Dickens and Shakespeare are saying, oh, but let's let's make our protagonist, quote unquote, uh, you know, a modernist who is going to try to determine all of the the rational reasons why this isn't a ghost mm -hmm. well while the audience is going yeah it's a ghost i and I, I i agree i think that's exactly what what happened and in uh exactly <laughs> what both shakespeare and dickens intended to happen um and ironically that is the same conversation that we go through as paranormal investigators and discussing these issues with our audience is, yeah. um, you know, often it's going through, all right, can you debunk this? Can you find another explanation, et cetera? And often the audience is much more willing to say, oh no, it's a ghost than yes. we are you know, <laughs> sort of the parallels to the, the writers in those situations, not that we're writing the situations, but we're, we're trying to analyze them just as the as Shakespeare and, and Dickens did. Um, and so in that regard, um, the, the writer and, and then the investigator are much more critical than the audience in a lot of regards. And some of that, some of that has to do with analyses and <clears throat> strata of thought, modernity, and those types of things. Some of it has to do with the fact that a surprisingly large percentage of everyday people experience the paranormal. Mm -hmm. And you know, and if they're they're honest with themselves, if we're honest with ourselves, we really have to step in and say, know this is actually an everyday occurrence that we often don't understand and sometimes our religious superstructure helps us along the way uh in terms of of making sense of things that wouldn't otherwise make sense and sometimes it does not exactly now shifting gears a little bit you know, we, we, we teased in the beginning that that um, these concepts, of course, made their way to the New World, eventually through Appalachia, into the Ozarks, and sort of framed our, our ghost lore. Um, yes. 
what what do you find as a, as a, as a nice parallel to <clears throat> oh <clears throat> english ghosts into the english ghosts i think first of all the conversation has to be understood and framed within a couple of state of, of positions one that so many of the early european settlers into missouri and arkansas held strong ties with elizabethan england yes uh they they <clears throat> strong ties in dialect strong ties in uh, uh perspective of the world uh strong ties in <clears throat> just a a uh, a way of looking at things a way of understanding things even on a a very gut level mm -hmm. and so we see these these very basic things that today often we assume as certain elements of pop culture or, or or culture that everyone simply knows we know that ghosts float through walls we know that witches are green thanks wizard of oz uh we we just know certain things but we don't know why we know them and so many of those things their their, their codified origin comes from england in the 1500s and the 1600s and we even see that with the fact that in, in the Ozarks, uh, Old Christmas on January 6th persisted for yeah. a very long time. And the, those elements of Elizabethan lore being associated with it, uh, the, the lore of uh, you know seeing a, a plant, uh, a flower bloom on January 6th, uh, uncharacteristically, the lore that uh, on the stroke of midnight, the animals in the barnyard are going to kneel and bow down before Christ their savior in mm -hmm. the in in a in a in a in an innate representation of the nativity and <clears throat> so there's there's just a an unspoken substructure that we we may not be aware of but it simply exists and it dictates a lot of these basic ideas that you could even ask most children how does this work so on and so forth the fact that uh, in Elizabethan England, <clears throat> uh, green is representative of, of fairies and witches uh, because of, of its association with nature. And <clears throat> we all, and then, you know, it's just, it's inured within us. Uh, the, 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 the witch, the wicked witch in the Wizard of Oz is green. Peter Pan's outfit is green. We just know these things, but we don't know why. That certainly is <clears throat> a framework for for these types of conversations and understanding these things socioculturally but then as the next step looking at the stories themselves and parsing some of those points out <clears throat> one is that that i think is is particularly powerful uh that, that appears to have strong ties between old world and new world is the ghost bride the concept mm -hmm. of the ghost bride and of course we see interesting tellings and retellings uh one of the most famous <clears throat> uh from from old england is the story of the bride and if it wasn't so deeply gruesome it would be funny because of course the the bride 
insists that everyone play hide and seek and then she accidentally locks herself in a closet that they can't find uh, yeah. and suffocates. <clears throat> That's, like I said, it would be funny if it wasn't so grotesque. And of course, there's multiple manor houses across Old England that uh, claim association with this story. Mm -hmm. Now, this also ties to the uh, to a very uh, traditionalist Northern European and specifically Anglo-Saxon and Brit British uh, concept that you are tempting fate uh, by by making. Mm, momentous life-changing decisions and crossing great thresholds things like marriage and births during the dark days during mm -hmm. during the uh the dark winter days and essentially the this idea that you are <clears throat> you are you are laughing at the dark gods and saying mm -hmm. during this the, this this very the during the darkest time of year i'm going to do something grand and momentous and because i don't care what the gods think and right. and the 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 punishment for that is typically death uh in the, in very strange and capricious ways that imply fate and one of the one of the most reson resonating stories of the Ozarks actually comes from Northwest Arkansas around Fayetteville, the story mm -hmm. of the Burning Bride, the the bride. Which this story may have uh, some some key origin points of of fact, but of a of a girl who gets <clears throat> gets married and on her wedding night, her father is comparatively wealthy, dresses her in Venetian lace, uh, Venetian lace unlike calico uh catches on fire very quickly she is unprepared for this she you know goes to uh to tend the fire in the fireplace on her wedding night and her dress catches on fire bursts into flames she runs out into the forest and burns to death and sets the forest on fire and creates the legend of the burning bride in uh in a holler that is uh said to be haunted to this day Yes, and in fact, is is referred to as Ghost Hollow, um, and ironically, that later um, a judge, Judge David Walker, built a you know big home nearby, and the haunting carried over, uh, and people would see her, um, and uh, people would refuse to stay the night, and things like this. Um, it very much um, uh, is reminiscent of, of, of these Elizabethan motifs. And um, I also find it interesting that the judge's grandson also mentioned that um, his granddad would warn him to stay away from the water well because there was a monster in it. Now, um, it does make you wonder if it, you know is that just a cautionary tale to keep the kid out of danger or or something else because there there is a there is a theme of these kind of stories through the ozarks too yeah. uh, monsters yeah. in a well a cave hidden spaces 
um, which does kind of harken back to these ideas of the supernatural or ghosts or whatever um, coming to people in ways that are unusual and and hidden in some way, either yes. hidden from other people or, or something. It's it's basically and just uh, another way of expressing that same idea. It is. <clears throat> there, there's some interesting layers to to all of these ideas. One of the things that really strikes me about the monster in the well is, <clears throat> you know, going back to this era uh, before the internet, before smartphones, before multimedia, before uh, cryptozoology is a thing, before any of these things. What, you know, if you're uh, you know, in the rural outskirts in Northwest Arkansas, uh, you're, you've, you know, built this home. There's a lot of weird stuff that's going around. Maybe when you're down at the well, you see something that you can't explain. <clears throat> and or hear something and what do you do you tell your grandson there's a monster down there don't go don't go by yourself maybe it is a cautionary tale maybe it maybe it's just a way to keep the kid from falling in the well but maybe it's more than that and mm -hmm. it's very difficult to know something that is interesting to me about that is <clears throat> in many of our investigations and something that's certainly Per becoming pervasive in, in uh, the larger pop culture of the paranormal is the idea that certain locations seem to have a wide variety of weird events, weird incidences uh, in certain places. And the, there's oftentimes not a lot of rhyme or reason. It, uh, you know, sometimes can be the, uh, the equivalent of you know, the, the Scooby-Doo holiday special where you just shove all of the, the villains into one episode and uh, <clears throat> and it doesn't doesn't always make sense. Um, you know, Spooklight Road for us is certainly one of the a prime location where there's a wide variety of seemingly disparate paranormal activity. True. <clears throat> and. The, the other thing that really struck out to me about this 1872 story of the Judge, Judge David Walker and the, the, the new brick home, two, two points. One, of course, we would look at the brick home today and say, wow, that's probably a haunted house because it's so old and, and old timey and nostalgic looking. But certainly in 1872, that was a brand new home. There, there wasn't something right. that had occurred within the home because it hadn't been there long enough. And so we have a great and it was example. fancy too. Yes. We, we have this, we have a great example of a new home, a new structure experiencing paranormal activity from something that happened earlier. Exactly. And, and that question comes up a lot these days of, well, why is it always a house from the 1800s like this house from 1872 and not a new house that has activity? Well, we investigate plenty that are new homes anyway you know yeah. new now but yes. we we tend to we tend to always think people tend to think in terms of now and what they know in their living memory anything beyond that has no context and but 
you, you always have to think that at any point in time, there, there were plenty of things that were brand new. Yes. <clears throat> and of course, hauntings can occur for a wide variety of reasons. Um, so just for the record, I am, I am absolutely guilty of that, that perspective and uh, still struggle with the idea of a haunting in a 1960s or 70s era ranch home because I grew up in a 1960s era ranch home. And I'm like, no, there's the, no, it. Yeah. <laughs> I've investigated plenty that are. <laughs> oh yeah. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> when I see like the, you know, the light wood paneling and the, uh, the, the uh, open living room, dining room, kitchen floor plan and uh, two, two bathrooms, three bedroom basement underneath you know built 1964 1965 those types of of structures and of course you know now i'm going oh that that that's actually like a vintage home now um <laughs> let me let me take a few moments to go existentially reestablish my grip on reality yeah. but <laughs> we don't like to think of those things <laughs> no no we don't and 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 at the same time <clears throat> i'm i'm certainly guilty of the idea that a a haunted house should look like you know a uh, a 19th century gothic mansion just like the one that was painted on that that uh, that book cover of trixie belden uh, that uh, was in the in the the lake in illinois down store in the back on the, the yeah you know, that rotated the with the books and <laughs> spooky and sort of you know looked like the haunted mansion from Disney World. No, that's that's a haunted house, and uh, certainly not the uh, tasteful 1965 three bedroom. <laughs> and, and maybe and maybe that's why there are so many. Uh, haunted caves and wells because we just put them in we we just put them out there <laughs> we we evicted the ghosts they had nowhere to go but the well um and that's a whole no, other story <laughs> definitely uh, we're forming our own uh, our own mm, topic for a couple of weeks down the road another thing that really jumped out to me and I'm I'm just I'm going to throw this out here as a discussion point for crossover. We talked about how the the everyday people reading Dickens or the everyday people watching Shakespeare for the first time could easily have looked at those situations being presented and went, "Yeah, ding dong, it's a ghost." We mm -hmm. all know what ghosts are. Um, we know what to do with them. We know what to stay away from them. It's it's not rocket science. Thanks for you know. But it's cool, so thank you for making it a part of the story. With Judge David Walker, one of the notes about the history is that the servants refused to stay overnight in the house. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, not the not the the wealthy builder, not the uh, the the higher strata people, but the servants, the everyday people who were closest to essentially what was going on. Exactly. And again, it, it, it has that parallel that that your your ordinary, your common people are more perhaps more in touch with this and accepting. Um, I guess today's parallel 
uh, you see it with, you know, uh, mass consumption of some of the uh, movies like the Conjuring movies and YouTube videos, et cetera, that so many people, you know, just said, yeah, it's a ghost, you know, where um, we, on the other hand, are deconstructing them. <clears throat> yes, let's figure out what it is really. And <clears throat> it, it, another thing, and I'm, I can't believe that I'm deconstructing them and reconstructing what I'm just about to do. Oh, no. <laughs> so, I the monster. No people. <laughs> <laughs> the, the monster at the well. Mm -hmm. The monster at the haunted well. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> is it is it the imagination is it is it is it a cryptid is it a ghost <clears throat> winding back historically and uh socio-ethnically to continental europe and to a couple of episodes back <clears throat> specifically house elves the fact that a house elf does not fit into any of our categories because a house elf is an ancestral spirit, mm -hmm. meaning somebody who died. Yeah. They died and they're buried in the Barrow Hill mm -hmm. on the farm. But now they're back. So maybe like the bride is back in the well. Yes. <laughs> and her name is now Momo. Um, <clears throat> is, <laughs> uh, I will not continue that one. Um, but th there is actually, there is an interesting conjecture point, which is <clears throat> we have an ancestor spirit and we would say at the, the most that an ancestor spirit could come back as is simply an apparition. Um, mm -hmm. Coming back as a ghost. Maybe you might, mm, to put it very flippantly, maybe you might see grandpa next to the barn. Um, but you're not going to say, no, he's going to come back as a physical elf. He's not going to come back as a two foot tall old man who takes care of the sheep. Right. <clears throat> And yet the very documentable lore about house elves is proposing exactly that, that the, it is the, the return as a corporeal elm, as a corporeal and sentient being with magical powers <clears throat> to be able to affect things positively or negatively around them. But they're not stuck as a corporeal being because they're still a non-corporeal being that can become invisible, can disappear, can come and go at will. Sometimes they can change sizes. And yet they also like porridge and butter and cream and whiskey and sugar and honey and nuts. And we're, we're, we're like, this doesn't make sense. You have to pick one. It has to be one or the other. And our, our older societies did not struggle with these questions. Coming back to <clears throat> something that we, a couple of things that 
have been proposed and observed, but not understood, in, particularly in terms, in specifically in terms of observation of cryptids, is that they oftentimes seem to occur around haunted locations. Mm -hmm. And they ex both seem to exist and not exist in a corporeal way. Or at least in some instances, yeah. So you, you have a new theory of Bigfoot where at least it's not E.T. Bigfoot is a house elf. <laughs> Cryptozoologists across the country need to stock up on porridge. Apparently. Well, you know, that is a nice segue um, into the Peter Bottom Cave story at Warrior. Yes. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll accept the porridge problem. Fair. I'm very fair. <clears throat> porridge sounds good, though. And <clears throat> really is <laughs> the fact that we, we start out with a doctor as a murder suspect who goes and hides for 20 years in a cave. That's, I mean, that, that's starting to sound Shakespearean already. <laughs> It, it is, and uh, <clears throat> of course, even uh, doctors who are murder suspects hiding out for 20 years in a cave cannot live uh, on an island alone. And so he's apparently relying on a, you know, misidentification to, to keep from getting, uh, you know, dragged off to the authorities. Finally but does. eventually he did. Eventually he did, did and, and take it to a mental health center. Yes, and uh, passes in the early 1960s. Before doing so, he tells the story of a very tall, hair-covered beast that also lived near the Peter Bottom Cave. And I'm I'm assuming that he's not uh, he's not talking about himself as the uh, tall, hair-covered beast. Of course, he was insane at this point. So, but we'll, but we'll, for 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 the benefit of the story, we'll assume that he was not correct. <clears throat> and then, in the nineteen in nineteen sixty six, uh, two young men decide to seek out the monster, and uh, they apparently find it, and mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> and experience a pretty traditional southern uh, cryptid uh, encounter. Yes, uh, very large, you know, eight or nine feet tall, covered in, and what I do like, though, about this one is covered in thick white hair, yes. uh, wh where most accounts through this part of the country are brown or darker colored, except for the one anecdotal that, uh, story that we do have of a tan creature. Yes. Um, <clears throat> So, oh, so perhaps there there is some precedence there. Um, left them in shock. Um, then um, I guess hunting parties went back looking for it. Never did find it. Um, but uh, stories continued for years of cattle torn apart in the fields near the cave and chicken houses plundered. Um, which, you know, do make you wonder um, some, that something at least was going on. 
Yes. <clears throat> Again, there's, there's a lot of, uh, of crossover with many other cryptid experience encounters, mm -hmm. uh, not only in the Ozarks, but elsewhere. And <clears throat> some, of the, some of the accounts that I've read is the, the young men's shock, particularly the shock of one of the men was apparently pretty extreme. Mm -hmm. uh, that it was, it was, it really shook the guy up. Uh, yeah, my, my understanding from accounts I've, I've read is that, that, I, that people seem to accept that they had definitely run into something out of the ordinary. And the aspects of, of cattle being mutilated, of course, has a lot of, use, once you use the word mutilated, then, you know, it really sets off a lot of alarm bells and then the UFOs and the men in black show up and there's things. But just the idea, of course, something that can tear apart a cow is something substantial. Well, and if this thing was as big as they described, you know, it certainly could be stout enough to do to do that, and certainly could inspire shock and terror to basically put someone into a post-traumatic stress situation. Yes. Now, does this particular creature have a have a regional name? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, I, you know, I've just read the anecdotal stories about it, but. Um, have not, I've never found a quote label for it other than assuming that it was a bit, you know, being described as some sort of Bigfoot type creature. Right. Um, you know, uh, it doesn't quite fit the blue man uh, stories, which um, are really not that far away <clears throat> from no. there. Um, uh, doesn't and it doesn't quite line up with folk monster um, from um, Boggy Creek, um, you know, fame, um, or necessarily even Momo. Um, so True. seems to be a little different <coughs> variety of, or at least a melanistic Bigfoot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Here we go. <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> oh, we—it's very simple, everyone. We found the Yeti. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he got—he got lost in the Himalayas and ended up here. <laughs> it's. <clears throat> Let me talk to you about the Hollow Earth. I—I <laughs> I have a—I have a simple. That, that's for the H.G. Wells episode. Yes. <laughs> it really is. I like it. it. Really <laughs> <laughs> but we'll just, we'll just refer to this as the Peter Bottom Cave Monster. Sounds um, good to me. I, uh, I, I, have a, uh, I have a working theory <clears throat> that for our Peter Bottom Cave Monster, uh, he unfortunately had spent uh, approximately 20 years with a doctor who was a murder suspect, and the stress of that had caused him to go preternaturally white. That now that's that that's indeed possible. You know, I mean, um, <laughs> probably 
make me go whiteheaded too. So. <laughs> it was just too much. It uh, you just couldn't take it. <laughs> Things were going along fine, um, and then this crazy murder suspect comes and moves into his cave with him, and they're like the odd couple. And then you multiply that times twenty years, and over the course of that time, his hair forcibly goes white from the stress. <laughs> That's one theory. <laughs> It's my working theory. I'm going to roll with it. Okay. <laughs> you know, I do, I do like the fact that you, you know, you did find um, sort of um, not necessarily um, by name Momo stories, but Momo stories in other areas besides Louisiana, Missouri. Yes. I, I I do find that very interesting, <clears throat> um, particularly at, uh, a 1959 occurrence around Mount Vernon, and mm -hmm. <clears throat> this is get, certainly perked up my attention because I I anecdotally heard a, a pretty verified story of a uh, of a Bigfoot uh, in rural Billings mm -hmm. just about six months ago. Well, uh, yeah, I, I remember us discussing that, and uh, well, and and there are um, there are occasions of anecdotal um, stories um, not far from me, actually in um, southern um, Jasper County and in, in Newton County, uh, Missouri. Um, between Joplin and Diamond, um, multiple accounts um, of, you know, Bigfoot or Momo um, type creatures. So um, one being at Mount Vernon, that's not that far away. So, and not it's far not. from buildings either, so. No, it really isn't. <clears throat> and then also, an account at Cape Fair too. Yes, so. I uh, I'm still fascinated by the uh, house elf as Bigfoot theory. <laughs> I don't think you want them doing the dishes or building your shoes. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> if you leave out porridge just for them to stay away. Yeah, so either that or put some just for men out so that they can dye their hair back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, they do. <clears throat> I think that is a, that's an excellent. We'll add that to the cryptozoology um, repertoire of responses. Okay. Now that we went down that rabbit hole. Yes, that was that was pretty much my doing. Um, <laughs> I, I took full responsibility for that one. Well, I think I think with that we we need to talk about span. You know, we're shifting a little bit from English ghost stories to Spanish explorers and and our ever present suicidal Indian maidens. Yes, <clears throat> there were there were apparently many of them. 
And mm -hmm. of course, I'm being facetious. Um, full disclaimer: on, you know, we're not we're not making fun of that. No. But there's, and, and <clears throat> realistically, I think that it is fair. It's certainly at this point, I'm comfortable mostly conjecturing. That's my disclaimer on this. I'm comfortable mostly to conjecturing that <clears throat> we we have a sort of a post-manifest destiny, mid-19th century, uh, American settler, uh, mm, sentimental slash nostalgic slash somewhat patronizing uh, uh, idea about Native American lore. Yes, and you know, and, and, and to be candid here, there, there does seem to have been you know, perhaps a grain of, you know, that grain of truth story somewhere in, in the um, Northeast um, with one of the Iroquois tribes of a suicidal maiden um, who committed suicide when she wasn't allowed to marry who she wanted. And then that tale has been retold and it was passed West and it's probably the most common folktale in yes. North America at this point. <clears throat> Agreed. But I, I, I like this version because it's it's a little different. Where you know that this is not uh, the Indian maiden who was in love with um, you know Indian warrior, which is how it usually goes. This is a. Um, a maiden who uh, falls in love with a Spanish soldier passing through the area. And so yes. that, that's a twist. And she has a name. And a, a lot of them, a lot of the tales, you don't get that detail, but she supposedly was named Moon Song. Correct. <clears throat> and there is a conflation, of course. This is associated with a, with a particular location on... <clears throat> today on Table Rock Lake. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Virgin Bluffs. <clears throat> and a 325 foot bluff uh, overlooking then the James River. And since, mm -hmm. since then, a portion of that has become Table Rock Lake, uh, but it's part of the, the, the James River confluence. And there is uh, an interesting conf uh, conflation between this legend and bread tray, the legend of bread tray mountain okay because <clears throat> one telling of the legend of bread tray mountain is that the the spanish conquistadors come to the mountain and begin mining silver from from the mountain and that there is conflict between the conquistadors and the the the, the european silver miners and the tribe, the local tribe. And one aspect, one telling of the story is actually this story that one of the men falls in love with uh, the chief's daughter and there is conflict. And then there's a war in which the, uh, the Spanish are driven off and then Moonsong commits suicide because they either uh, drove off her lover or they killed him. Right. And the area still bears the name Virgin Bluffs to commemorate it. Although yes. a lot of people probably don't know that at this point. Right. And 
<clears throat> there, there is, of course, the, the legends of strange things happening uh, around the bluffs uh, that, you know, hearing, hearing a woman crying near the, you know, near the space. <clears throat> um, and uh, back when it was a, uh, uh, just part of the James River, it was referenced as the Virgin Shoals and the Virgin Swirl because of the unusually turbulent water that uh, caused many boats to capsize in, uh, in that particular bend. Okay. So it's, <clears throat> uh, it, it is an interesting story. One of the things that I like about it is it's, oh, well, there's two aspects. One, that it's mixing, uh, two different legends that, mm -hmm. that have <clears throat> the the legend of of moonsong and the legend of red train mountain they are within close enough proximity for that to geographically make sense these are not locations that are terribly far apart that's true i mean and and that certainly could explain you know if if, if the legend with uh, with the spanish at uh, red Tray mountain is true uh, which there's a lot of conjecture there that's yes. not necessarily proven but had, if that did happen then certainly um it's close enough that you know this is a possibility or at least that that's where she basically ran off to to commit suicide so yes <clears throat> and, and, and and, and what I find interesting is that there, there's a just enough plausibility there that really does make you wonder how much of a grain of truth there is of something there. It is. I something that I find really interesting, and it's it's difficult to parse out, um, is the legendary status of Spanish treasure hunters coming through the Ozarks and specifically into Southwest Missouri? Well, there, I mean, there, there's, anecdotally, there, there is some evidence that that may have, that may have happened. Um, certainly we do know the Spanish did um, push into uh, exploring into the Arkansas, um, Ozarks um, on exploration quests, um, yes. and so it's it's very it's conceivable that they did come this far north. Um, an alternate version that I have I have uh, read and heard is that um, the Spanish soldiers coming through Southwest Missouri actually were coming from santa fe with a mm. treasure train coming to the to the mississippi um and then the story goes that they they met some sort of ill fate illness or attack or something and never made it to their destination and therefore the gold is somewhere uh in southern missouri or extreme northern arkansas and that I think is <clears throat> really interestingly enough more plausible because one of the things that really <clears throat> strikes at the heart of 
the Ozarks treasure story for the conquistadors is the fact that there really isn't mineable silver or gold to any great degree in the Ozarks. Right. There are a few traces in places, um, but very small traces along with sort of lead deposits, things like that, that but nothing that was really mineable. Um, I mean, in fact, Golden City, Missouri had um, got its name from uh, the Golden Groves, which um, there are trace amounts. Uh, there were trace amounts of gold there, um, but not enough to amount to anything. Um, and there, there was, uh, when settlers came, they found evidence of mining pre-existing. And so the story became that it was Spanish, but they later figured out that it was actually the Mound Builder Indian Society had mined there for certain bedrock that was actually incorporated into like Spiro Mounds and Cahokia and so forth. Wow. So you, you get those those uh, mixing of those those stories, and another thing that people often don't realize that um, there was a major battle uh, in was it present day Nebraska in the early 1600s between the French and the Spanish. Um, yes. That um, so you know the fact that they could have been through this area is very conceivable. <clears throat> right. <clears throat> and and transitioning um, transitioning treasure and the idea of just enough people within the you know in, in early settlement to capture or to catch wind of some elements of the story but not others exactly exactly so and you know and, and there are a number of there are a number of these of these tales of supposedly where either the Spanish were or even you know uh, French fort. And there's some legends of French forts in this uh, uh, having been um, established very early on um, and then abandoned. So um, yeah. although empirically they've not been documented, so correct. <clears throat> so yeah, I do find I do find that version of the story very interesting because it's got elements that a lot of the uh, of of the suicidal princesses stories don't. It does, and it <clears throat> it does have that that old world connection, and the fact that there are odd happenings reported around that that space. Yes. So, um, and, and it's one that a lot of people are, are not too familiar with if they're not from the immediate area too. Kind of related as we were talking about sort of outdoor spaces and, and caves and wells and so forth is the idea of haunted, haunted trees and orchards and so forth. That is yes. a that that is a recurring theme in Ozark's ghost stories, and that really 
that really does tie back to the English roots because that because in old England trees were often considered to be haunted yes um, and not necessarily for a particular reason even um, but um, in different forests um, with certain mistakes and Sherwood Forest would would be a example a lot of people would know and of course the reason is supposedly that Robin Hood and his men you know stayed in Sherwood Forest is because it was haunted um, and that most people would not go into it because it was supposedly cursed so yes <clears throat> and certainly there <clears throat> I'm I'm reminded now you know on a on a uh, an almost superficial pastiche we are reminded of these things uh every halloween if we bob for apples or eat taffy apples etc there's an apple motif but particularly the bobbing for apples is a you know is reminiscent of a, of divination which is yeah. what the association with the apple is <clears throat> apple was considered magical it is uh <clears throat> So, you know, and, and this is something that is part of the substrate of, of Greco-Roman lore, but separately, it is also part of the substrate of elements of Norse mythology or Norse lore, as well as Celtic and other Germanic lores. And mm -hmm. so the, certainly the, the apple held extraordinary significance. Consequently, the apple orchard held extraordinary significance. I think that the, 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 the pre-Christian or, or pagan influences can be seen in medieval and Renaissance art. When you look at uh, the, uh, the tree of life, the Garden of Eden, and it is embedded within our minds that the, the fruit, the forbidden fruit was an apple. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, ironically, Dale postulates that it was peach because he likes peaches better than apples. And uh, he and I have a deep theological debate over the fact that I'm convinced it was a mango because I like mangoes better than all of them. That aside, <laughs> that aside, um, there's- I do uh, like mangoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I, uh, th there's a great um, Southern English bit of lore of uh, various times and on, on key uh, celestial evenings going out and uh and offering drink offerings pouring out brandy uh and other liquors to the apple trees yes well and 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 there there's a bit of that in southern lore uh particularly in voodoo and hoodoo um of honoring uh and giving offerings around trees Yes. So, um, not necessarily apple, but just you know that that's often where offerings. Are centered around trees, whether they be hanging trees or. Um, orchards or so forth, you know, um, the, uh, the phantom of a villa 
was uh, hung in the in an orchard. Yes. Um, for instance. And I think that there there is something very both very evocative, uh, and very ancestral ancestrally powerful about those motifs. It is up to question in terms of precisely why, but there is magic in the the apple apple orchards. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> certainly it's recognized that uh, the Fae the understood that and a, a lot of other things, including ghosts would at times understand that. Uh, there's, there's a particular pecan grove that uh, resonates with me and I want to go investigate it and I'm curious as to what we're going to find. But <clears throat> it, it's, it's something that seems to go beyond just the everyday. It, it really, it really does. It, it, it really does. And a lot, in a lot of the tales with, of course, cryptids and other supernatural creatures that aren't necessarily ghosts in the Ozarks often are in either the woods or an orchard or somehow centered around a tree. So, um, I mean, that certainly goes straight back to old English lore. It, it does. <clears throat> and I can't help but draw a few lines, obviously, between just the, the harvest season, uh, the divination, and, uh, and even things like buttery sprites, because where do you put the apples? You put them in the, you put them in the buttery. That's true. That's true. <coughs> Which leads us to the fae. It does. <laughs> <laughs> it it does indeed and of course there there is a strong association of uh of the fae uh we're specifically referring to fairy lore with the forest and with springs and particular trees of note of hawthorns of special mountains of special and difficult places to get to those types of things, and <clears throat> a certain amount of these associations are are just those spaces that we almost instantly and intuitively recognize. It looks magical. It looks enchanted. It's a little spooky. It's very beautiful, mm -hmm. and there are many locations throughout the uh, the Ozarks that fit this criteria. Really, that really does. Um, we've investigated a few of those. Um, uh, but then the Ozarks, when in the Ozarks, when we start talking about the Fae, I, I think we usually comes up in terms of the little people, probably more than anything. Yes. Yes, and uh, which again uh, is very much analogous to the Fae in the British Isles. Um, but the little people are were known to a lot of uh, North American uh, Native Americans. Um, with, with a really rich lore about them with the Cherokee. 
and uh, you know, it's, it's I always find about the little people is it's not it's not one dimensional uh, because they 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 could be helpful. They could uh, sometimes help lost children uh, find their way home. But on the other hand, on the flip side, um, they were known to lure people into the woods um, in a way, and um, they may or may not ever be seen again. Um, a little bit of um, almost a, a gin quality of granting wishes, but you know, one of those be wary of what you ask because you'll get exactly what you ask for, but not necessarily the way you want it. Um, and so they could be anything from helpful to a trickster. Yes. <clears throat> Something that is of, of interesting note to me is that mm -hmm. much like ghosts, much like paranormal ghost activity, um, there, there is a universality to the lore. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> certainly we associate the fae, the fairies, and you don't have to dig very deeply to really dig into Celtic lore and associate it with the Celtic lands, particularly Ireland, um, sometimes Ireland and Wales. And there's, there's a strong crossover there. However, American or Eng uh, European and English settlers coming to America and interacting with uh, the, the First Nation, the native peoples here, mm -hmm. began to collect and understand very quickly that many of the various tribes had extremely similar lore about extremely similar phenomena with an understanding that the, the, they're basically the same thing. Yes, um, and with slightly different appearances, but I think it's, you know, it's almost like the old saying, when in Rome, just <laughs> the Romans, uh, appearing as what would make sense in the culture that they appeared in. Yes. To me, it's almost more like that than that there's a, not so much that there's a, a demarcation between, you know, North American little people are fundamentally separate and distinct from the Fae in the British Isles. Um, it's, it's almost as if it's, they are the same, but they, they appear differently because of who they're appearing to. <clears throat> And I think that could be very fair. I was just noting, going through some of our notes, in England, uh, an apple tree man was said to reside in the oldest apple tree in each orchard. And according to Franklin, he can grant a good harvest for the whole orchard and other benefits besides, but the last of the crop should be left on the ground for the apple tree man. I like that. I do too. <clears throat> and it's, uh, in, in many cases, the, uh, the interaction with the Fae, the, the lessons to be learned in some cases are cautionary in teaching you to be conservation minded, teaching you not to be greedy, teaching you to be mindful of your surroundings and particularly mindful of the natural world. 
Well, you know, it, it reminds me, it's, you know, as you, as you said that, I hadn't thought about this for a very long time, but um, my, my grandmother always said with, with walnuts, with walnut trees that, you, you know, you never took all of the walnuts, you always left some on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that in a very long time, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, probably the same principle, you know. It is, it is, and <clears throat> that, you know, whether, whether you're leaving them out for the squirrels, whether you're leaving them out to, uh, you know, to grow more trees, or you're leaving them out for the fae, or possibly all three. Exactly. Uh, regardless, it's good practice. Between the three. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> that... Uh, something that, and of course, uh, one of our sources for this evening is the Folklore of Fairies, Elves, and Little People, a study in cultural phenomena by Gary R. Varner. And something that was really powerful to me, and we've already touched on it, but just the, the varied quality, so many different uh, Native American tribes from so many different regions having essentially fairy lore. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's not it's not just unique to the Cherokee or or to just the areas that they were in. No, and <clears throat> the there's a lot to choose from, but uh, you know, legends of dwarves with wizard-like capabilities, evil hunchbacks, and strange beings from the heavens being almost universal throughout Native American culture. Mm -hmm. There are they're so common that they cannot be explained as cultural coincidences or simply as children's tales. For such a thing to be so impressed upon the minds of the people is evidence of an historical origin. And, and that's the thing. It's always easy to dismiss these things, but when it's so widespread, it becomes a little hard to do so. It does. <clears throat> and of course, the uh, you know the this particular lore uh, reference goes into considerable detail about the uh, potential prehistoric elements, the idea that there might have been a race of small people that mm -hmm. uh, impacted. And I, I find that fascinating. At the same time, I really like the idea that it's simply the Fae and they've always existed in a corporeal and non-corporeal simultaneous state. That's true. I mean, you know, the flip side of that is that um, there, there are tales clear across North America of um, from Native American tribes of having wars hundreds of years ago with uh, giants who were light-skinned and red-headed. Yes. <clears throat> and that's distinct from the tales of, of wars uh, between certain tribes and wild men or, or, or Sasquatch. Correct. So, Correct. So, Separately, <clears throat> I, I think one of our one of our concluding takeaways uh, of, of tonight's episode <clears throat> is that our mm, less sophisticated peoples, and whether that are uh, Shakespearean era Elizabethan era people, whether that's uh, a very traditional First Nation, not you know Native American peoples in North America. Etc. In many cases, especially where 
it's a situation of simple pragmatism. We, we're seeing certain things, we're experiencing certain things. Oftentimes our survival is based upon our ability to observe and learn. Exactly. There, there is a pragmatism there that does not have time for dogma, whether that is modernist dogma, whether that is traditionalist dogma. <clears throat> it simply is. And there is a, a sophistication of, of human thought that oftentimes balances or equals our, our quite frankly, our, our ability to be imbeciles. And there, that's an interesting yin and yang. And I, I think that it's a very myopic position to, to take and to look at these past annals, these past records, and say, oh, these were primitive peoples, these were dumb peoples, they didn't know what they were seeing, they're not sophisticated like we are. Um, no, oftentimes their, their very survival through the day was dependent upon them being able to effectively analyze the situation and the environment around them and arrive at reasonably accurate conclusions. Yes, I, th I think that we um, grossly exaggerate our, our routine use of those skills. And, um, and in fact, we are, we have such a safety net against having to figure those things out that uh, um, we aren't even conscious of the fact that we are at a loss at this point. Yes. And, you know, I can't even identify the majority of the constellations in the sky unless I pull out my star app. Yeah. Well, that's true. But then, of course, you're not navigating the ocean either. So. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, have a, I have a Rand McNally Atlas. <laughs> it serves my needs well. Um, I'll, I'll buy a plane ticket or, or <laughs> passage on a, on a ship if I have to cross the ocean. <laughs> yes, yes, 100%. It's, it, is a, it is a different world to a degree, but there, there, there are the, those intersection points where we touch the, the ancient, the primeval, uh, the supernatural, the paranormal, and you know, depending upon our perception, perspective and perception and sort of innate preparedness that can either be an enchanting experience, it could be an interesting experience, or it could just existentially unhinge us. Well, which, you know, we, we, we see in these old tales and we see um, through people's interaction with pop culture, um, with these, with these narratives, and we see them in live, uh, live events with the, with the comments and questions that are asked. So, um, yes. but what it does, you know, what it does say is that this discussion is circular in the fact that it does take us right back to the ideas that form the, the constructs of the supernatural and ghost tales in medieval England and Elizabethan England, and we are still talking in the same terms, whether we like it or not. We are, we are, and uh, and still analyzing uh, paranormal occurrences. 
within the same framework. That's that's true. I mean, um, the the way that it's analyzed right now is would be uh, a comfortable discussion for those sitting in the Globe Theater in sixteen oh three. Yes. <clears throat> <laughs> And that might be that might be where we you know leave our last thought. Um, I but, find that very comforting. I really do. Well, I do too. I do too. But then, but then I am a, a fan of Shakespeare. So you know, the the thought of seeing in the Globe Theater at that time would you know is something that I, I would relish doing. <laughs> oh, me too. Me too. Absolutely incredible. <sighs> so on that on that note, everyone, don't forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. And thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for bringing um, the Darko's Arts to everyone. On the next episode, we're going to be discussing dark winter ghost stories and a whole lot more. Catch the Dark Ozarks podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. Thank you to everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks.